Today's scripture reading is from the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It's Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come today to a very important passage in a very important book in the midst of a world that very much needs believers who have the mind of Christ. And so I pray that you would use our time around these two verses in order to frame the kind of mindset that brings light into the world that emulates the glory and the goodness of Christ and makes much of you in a world that desperately needs to see what you are about. So use these verses, I pray. Come Holy Spirit, now fall on us as we receive your word and be our teacher. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So what I'm about to share with you from God's word is entirely true, but it doesn't work. What I'm about to tell you will be incredibly interesting, but when you leave here, you really won't be able to apply it in your life. Now what if that was the real way that my message was gonna go this morning? Some of you were already talking to your spouse and you were thinking, the door's there, right? Why? Because the reality is whether you're a Christian or not, nobody comes into this room and no one listens to this message online to hear something that's true and then hear something that doesn't work. Nobody wants to hear a message or come to church where they hear an idea of the way that life could be in this room only to then leave and realize, this doesn't work. The fact of the matter is, the best Sundays and the best sermons are when you see an important connection. And that connection is between the truth of God's word and where you live. When you see the beauty of a truth that then actually works in your life or in the life of somebody else, there is nothing that is more glorious and hopeful than that. And the thing that I want to share with you from Romans 12, verses one and two, is this in particular, church. Christianity fundamentally works. It works by changing your mind. And that mindset change changes what you love and what you are about and what you pursue, and it changes your life. And so I'm here to tell you today that two verses in the Bible, 
can change your life because they begin to change your mind. Today we make an important step in our study of Romans. We enter now into Romans 12 to 16, which is a very important bridge in Paul's letter to the church at Rome. These chapters, chapters 12 to 16, connect the sweeping and big theology that we had heard through chapters one through 11, and it connects it to street level where we all live. And Paul often does this in his letters. He goes through theology and then moves to practice. He, he gives you big sweeping ideas of what God is like and then drives it home in terms of how you talk to one another and how you work it out at work and how you work this out in marriage and in terms of other relationships. And what Paul is going to show us here is some unbelievable application of biblical truth. We're gonna see the way in which Romans 1 to 11 apply to subjects like spiritual gifts, um, the way in which Romans 1 to 11 affects our morality and how we live, how to be able to um, think about government and the respect of government and how do Christians live in a government even if that government isn't Christian in its orientation. Romans 12 to 16 identify how do you have believers who are in the same church but have differing convictions about certain things that they do and one family does one thing and another does another and, and how do you get along when there's differing preferences and convictions and for that matter Romans 12 to 16 talks about how do you get along when you come from different socioeconomic or even racial backgrounds and how does the gospel bring us all together. So Romans 12 to 16 is incredibly practical and it's all based on the vision of what we have seen in Romans 1 through 11, and I hope that interests you. I find it fascinating that even though the book of Romans was written in the first century, the truth within it and its application is still as relevant today as it was when Paul wrote it to the church at Rome. This whole section, Romans 12 to 16, is introduced in verses 1 and 2, and essentially what Paul is laying before you Laying before me is a new mindset. What Paul is going to show us here is a paradigm for what it means to be a Christian. And he's going to introduce it here in verses one and two and then apply it all the way for the next 13 Sundays as we walk through this glorious section in this letter. The transition that Paul is going to help us to see is the connection between big and sweeping theological ideas about who God is, in terms of his mercy, his sovereignty, his power, and his grace, and he's gonna connect that into where we actually live. In other words, that theology actually creates morality. Our world doesn't think that theology creates morality. Our world thinks that those are two separate things. And yet what Paul will show us here is that this truth of the gospel in Romans is a truth that was meant not just to be thought, it's a truth that actually is meant to be lived. That the truth in this book is meant to work in your life. In fact, Paul goes so far to say that if your Christianity doesn't work in its morality, then you don't have true Christianity. It's Galatians 5, 16 to 24 doesn't mean you're perfect. But what it does mean this, 
It means this, that if there's a huge disconnect between what you say that you believe and what you actually live or what you hear here and then how you live it out and you call yourself a Christian, you gotta take some careful inventory because to be a follower of Jesus means that you have a different way of thinking and as a result, you have a different way of living. That's the point. And a mindset in that respect can be very powerful. A number of months ago, we talked from Romans 6 that Christianity is not an escalator that simply is coasting you upwards, but rather Christianity is walking up a down escalator, that the current of the world is pulling us down, 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 and Christians are walking up that down escalator. And there are some times and some seasons in church history where it feels like that escalator, its pacing has gotten faster and it's more like a six mile an hour treadmill than it is just a standard casual escalator. And the question is, what kind of mindset should you have as you're walking up that escalator? How do you help your children to know how to think about a world that's around them? How do you think about the world in which you live? How do you think about what I'm even saying today through the scriptures, and then how does that inform how you live every day? Those are the issues that are in play in verses one and two, and then will inform how we look at chapters 12 through 16. So we're talking today about a mindset, and I think fundamental to this Christian mindset are three basic commitments or statements or prayers. I hope these will become yours. I think to have a Christian mindset requires saying, first, I'm yours. I belong to you. I affirm that I have nothing without you. Secondly, God, I want you to change me. It's not just that I'm yours, but it's I want to be changed. I want to be transformed And then it means that as I go out into the world that I am constantly saying, God, I want you to lead me. So I think a Christian mindset is reflective of these three statements. I'm yours, change me, and lead me. Let me show you this in the text today. First, I'm yours. Verse one, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So the first statement here reflects a mentality that comes out of verse one, namely, I'm yours. And what that statement is meant to do is to combine two things, to combine a positional reality and a practical reality. It's designed to communicate there's something positional, that I belong to him. He rescued me, he saved me, he redeemed me. It means that as a follower of Jesus, I've given my heart and life to Christ, that I belong to somebody else, that the fundamental commitment in my life is I don't belong to me anymore. I'm the problem with me, and Christ rescued me, not just from other things in the world. He rescued me from me, so I belong to him. That's the first and fundamental commitment And yet that statement is not just theoretical, it's not just philosophical. It's meant to be something that I embrace, that I pledge my allegiance to, that I celebrate. It's not just that I positionally belong to him, but it's that I belong to him and I confess my affirmation of that over and over. Paul says, I appeal to you. There's an urgency here. In light of everything he said, 
he now moves into this section where in light of what I just said in Romans chapter 11, and remember where we were if you were here two weeks ago? We ended with Romans eleven thirty six: From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. We, we ended in this triumphant reality. And then Paul says, so I appeal to you. In light of what we've just heard about God, in light of who he is, there are things that we need to embrace. It would be hard to overestimate the strength of what Paul is trying to say here. So if you loved the big views of God in Romans 1 to 11, then you need to lean in and listen to what Paul is saying in chapters 12 to 16. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers. That word connects the previous 11 chapters to what's going to come, and then he says, by the mercies of God. So everything he's saying is grounded in God's grace. I mean, over and over in Romans 1 to 11, we have seen it, have we not? The beauty and the mercy of God against this back, this black, horrible story of our own fallenness, we see this gleaming, beautiful jewel of God's righteousness. We climbed the summit of Romans chapter eight and we heard the scriptures say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It means that God has declared over sinful human beings who he rescued in his sovereign mercy, who he set his love on them while they were his enemies and he declared over them because of the finished work of Christ that these sinful people are mine, they are forgiven, they are cleansed and no one can have any charge against them. They can't charge themselves the devil can't charge themselves because in Christ they are absolutely 100% clean and forgiven. That is the mercy of God. And that's the beautiful summit of Romans 8. And that reality has sweeping implications for how you live. If you don't get that right, if you don't get mercy right, you'll never get living right. You see, people who have seen this vision of God's mercy, they are fundamentally different. They have been, the Puritans used to say, they have been bemercied. They've been affected by God's mercy. This is why, church, why theology and big thoughts about God really matter. They really do. That's why you need to read a theologically oriented book this summer. Read a couple novels, go ahead and then read a theology book, the kind of book, something, that as you're sitting at the beach in a restaurant or at a campsite or your backyard and you read a line and your heart just goes up. Big theology and views of God matter. This is why if your children were in our Next Generation Sunday School class this year, you ought to thank God for teachers who are giving your kids big views of God. And why some of you, as Kristen said, ought to think about engaging in that ministry, to think that you can shape little minds and hearts with big views of God that will last them for the rest of their lives. Could there be anything more significant than that? The starting point of this Christian mindset is I'm yours. I belong to God, not because of me. I belong to God because of him. And yet there's something more here. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, here's what he says, to present your bodies 
as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So he, he doesn't intend for us just to stay in this beautiful aura of basking in God's incredible mercies. That, that mercy is supposed to have an effect, and he calls them to present themselves. He calls us to present ourselves as living sacrifices. It's a very interesting statement that Paul makes here. What he's doing is drawing from an Old Testament sacrificial system of worship. In the Old Testament, everything about their worship was connected to sacrifice. The, the Old Testament temple mount was designed to have sacrifices in the middle. When people came to, to worship God at various festivals, it was all about the sacrifice that they brought. And so to say bring a sacrifice meant that Israel worshiped God by virtue of these sacrifices. There was no relationship with God apart from sacrifice. It was so incredibly linked. And so Paul draws on that sort of image and metaphor, and he says to them that they they are to present their bodies as a living sacrifice. So instead of presenting, don't miss this, a dead animal, the Christian's new sacrifice is to present a living body, a person, a, a, an individual who has been rescued and renewed by the person and work of Jesus. For an Old Testament person hearing this, or a New Testament Jew or Gentile, they understood the implication of what Paul was saying here. It is that God wants not your dead animal sacrifices. No, 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 he wants all of you. Three words that are important, present, it means in the original language, it's grammatically rooted in what God has done. So God has captured you, and yet you need to affirm it. That's why I love the statement, I'm yours. And so in light of what God has done, the believer is to have a presenting mindset. So here's an assignment for you. Tomorrow morning, when your feet hit the floor, and you realize after waking up, it's morning, and after you thank God that you're alive that next morning, instead of, oh, I can't believe it's morning, a challenge to you is the first words out of your mouth tomorrow morning, let them be this, Lord, I'm yours. That's what this means. John Calvin said this, I offer my heart to you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. That's the idea. Paul says we're to present our bodies he uses this term to capture not just the physicality of obedience, he certainly means that, but he means the whole person. So I'm offering all of myself. Present your bodies means all of you. I'm yours means to affirm that I belong to Christ. Every part of me, every aspect of me, that total being belongs to Christ. And Paul says, present all of yourself to him. And then he says, as living sacrifices. The idea is not just physically alive. It means that there is spiritual life in you. Physical life is implied, but it's even more than that. It means because you are now in Christ, because you have been brought from death to life, you are to present your whole being as those who have been captured by this beautiful redemption that's implicit in the gospel. The text goes on. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. It means this is what God wants. So what does God want from his children? What, what's, what's holy and acceptable to him? You know what the answer is? What does he want? He wants living sacrifices. He wants lives that are lived out under the banner of his grace. 
That's the purpose of his mercy. It is that you would be enamored with the beauty of what God has done for you and then go out into the world and live like those who've been captured by the person and work of Christ. And then he says, which is your spiritual worship? It's a hard phrase to translate. Various translations have a wide range in terms of how they render it. Those of you who grew up with a the King James Version, it reads, which is your reasonable service? The NIV uses four words for two Greek words. That which is true and proper worship, and the New Living Translation renders it as, this is truly the way to worship. And what does it mean? What Paul is saying is this, that it simply makes sense or that it fits with who God is and what he has done that you would offer all of yourself as a living sacrifice to him. So when he says this is your spiritual worship, he doesn't mean just that this is a way that you worship God. What he means is this is what just simply makes sense in light of everything that he's done. If you understand, in other words, Romans 9, 10, and 11 and the big view of God's sovereign mercy in your life, then it's gonna show up in your neighborhood. It's gonna show up in the marketplace. It's gonna show up in how you talk. It's gonna show up in how you treat one another. It's gonna show up in Christian marriages and Christian parenting, Christian language. It's gonna show up, that's the point. There should be no bifurcation of what we learn on Sunday and then what happens out in the world. This exists for that in the world. That's the point, and that's what Paul is saying here, that this is your reasonable service. It just makes sense. In light of your relationship with your God, there are certain things that should go along with with it. Let me give you an example. There are other things in life that have this close connection between conduct and action that is reasonable and positional realities. The best one, I think, is marriage. When a man and a woman are married and they are declared to be married, there are covenantal commitments that are central to that married status. The conduct and the position are absolutely linked. To be married means that you understand the conduct that goes with it, the faithfulness that's connected to it. In fact, so much so that if a temptress were to come across your path and make an appeal for you to break your marital vows, it would make entirely good sense for you to say this, I won't because I'm married. I'm married, back off. Why is that statement in and of itself reflective of conduct. Here's why. Because the position assumes conduct, and that's what Paul is saying. To be mercied by God is to be one who lives as a sacrifice in the world, that there is a ethical and reasonable commitment that is connected to being in the person and work of Christ. So when we affirm, God, I'm yours, means that God has graced us with mercy, it means that we belong to him, and that every part of me belongs to him, and this is the first part, the first step in embracing a Christian mindset. This means that if you're a Christian, you can't compartmentalize your life. You can't be like, well, I'm, I'm all in here, but out there I'm not so much in. If you're not all in here and in all in there, you're not all in at all. It means that when you come to worship, what you're doing here is you're reaffirming what you believe so that when you can go out into the world, you will keep reaffirming what you believe. I mean, let's be honest, it's easy to be a Christian in here, 
We're all singing the same songs, cheering one another on, greeting each other warmly. It's awesome. Love it. It's not normal. We're going to go out into the world and face with temptations and difficulties and trials. So this is to remind you who you are so that when you go out, you live like who you really are. First mindset is I'm yours. Here's the second one. Paul asks and invites us to consider what it means to be changed. He begins with the negative. Do not be conformed to this world. There's an important warning here. It's telling that Paul starts here, and I think you understand why. It's because living sacrifices are not placed in a safe environment. The culture of the world is marked by hostility and by contrary forces and by a continual anti-righteousness pressure. So some of you right now in the midst of everything that's happening in our culture, you're pushing the panic button like this has never happened before. It's always been like this. Just for whatever reason, for a couple hundred years, we didn't realize how really dark the world really was and is. He says, do not be conformed to the world. Why does he say that? It's helpful. Because first, it wakes us up to the fact that the culture around us, while embedded with aspects of God's goodness, has the potential to shape us and conform us in ways that are fundamentally dangerous. That there is a worldliness about the word, the world. I know some of you grew up in churches where that worldliness thing was used all the time, so you kind of roll your eyes anytime that worldliness thing comes, because for you it's associated with some kind of no-no list or the dirty dozen list or what real Christians don't do. And I understand your reticence to hear the word worldliness, but you need to know that there is a worldliness in the world that is deeply concerning and alarming. There is a worldview pressure that is blowing a competing theology as it relates to who God is, who you are, knowing what is right and wrong and determining how we ought to live. That the world in which you and I live is not neutral territory. Movies, social media, books, friends, educational systems, business culture, your neighbors, government, consumerism, they're all these things that are embedded with non-neutrality. They are vehicles through which the theology and ethics of a broken world become clear and are leveraged for influence. And we have so many more vehicles for the leveraging of worldly influence that we have in our day than we have ever had. The world, the flesh, and the devil are always colluding to conform us into an anti-God mindset. I say all of that so that you know that the world in which you live is not a safe place. Secondly, this do not be conformed to the world is a, a warning about passivity because there's a tendency to be lulled into sleep. We kind of sit back and thoughtlessly just kind of ingest every aspect of the world's culture. This is the time of year I love to be outside riding a bike and riding fast. I wear goggles and I keep my mouth closed. Why? Well, don't be foolish and ride your bike with your mouth open. You're going to ingest all sorts of things. And yet so many believers sit in front of a television, sit in front of their internet, look at their literature, social media, and they just have mouths wide open ingesting everything that comes their direction. Thinking as though the world is a safe place. So not being conformed to the world means that you have have not taken the shape of the world. It means that the world's form and your form do not fit nicely together. 
Do not be conformed to this world. Some of you, you're, you're flirting with a mindset and a mentality that is going to reap terrible fruit. So what's the hope? He says, do not be conformed, but be transformed. That word is the word that we get our word metamorphosis from. It means that you take on a different shape, that there's a transformation that's happening. It means that you incrementally begin to look different. It's the idea coming out of 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we all with an unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. What does that mean? It means as you even hear now, hear Romans 12, and you're listening intently What's happening as you are seeing things about God through Romans 12, 1 and 2, that incrementally you are beginning to look more and more like Jesus. It means you get into your car and somebody cuts you off in the parking lot at church and instead of getting mad, you're like, God bless that person. (laughs) And your spouse looks at you like, who's that? And your kids are like, daddy loves Jesus. I mean, so... So you, you see the incremental progress. It's as practical as that. It's as practical as how you conduct yourself in your neighborhood, how you act out in the marketplace, how you treat a waitress at a restaurant when she's taking your order. Then incrementally you begin to look more and more like Jesus and that over your lifetime that you have 40 years or 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 years of incremental progressional Christ-likeness so that you can look at your life and say thank God somehow, some way. I look more like Jesus today than I did 10 years ago. And you know how that happened? It happened because Sunday after Sunday you listened and you, you leaned in and you took notes and you sung songs vibrantly and you studied the word because there was something happening to you. And the Bible calls that transformation the renewal of your mind. The problem with many Christians is they don't think about their thinking. And what the Bible says is that thinking creates actions or mindsets produce lifestyles, that theology creates ethics, that the life of the body, the life of obedience comes through the mind. The Bible has a lot to say about the mind. Jesus' summary of the law was this, love the Lord your God with all your soul, with all your heart, rather all your soul, and all your mind. In one of Peter's, must have been one of his worst days of his lifetime, when Jesus said to him, Matthew 16, get behind me, Satan. Can we just acknowledge that's not a good day for Peter? He comes home, his wife says, how is, how, how is following Jesus today? Nah, that's so good. What, what happened? Well, Jesus, Jesus called me Satan. She was like, what? <laughs> called you Satan? Yeah, this is it's not good, not good. So wh- why does he call him Satan? Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Why? For you are setting your mind on the things of not on the things of God, but on the things of man. You want to be a part of Satan's activity? Just set your things on things of, the, of man and not on things of God. Christians are exhorted to have the mind of Christ in Philippians 2, which looks like humility and unity and sacrifice. We're commanded to set our minds on things that are above. And we're warned in Romans 1 that the characteristic of the world is a debased mind, a dark mind. Here's Romans 1, 21 to 28. For although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile 
That ought to scare you. That word ought to scare you. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. You see the connection? To renew the mind means the reversal of the tragedy of Romans 1. It means to have a right view of God that leads to right actions. It means the Holy Spirit uses the scriptures. It uses, it uses the Bible. It uses today. Like today is part of that. And so I hope you came anticipating learning and reading. I mean, even if it's a bad message, you still, this is the Bible. You ought to walk away thinking, God, why, why am I here that God uses the scriptures and the spirit in order to create new thoughts and, and new desires and recorrect us? He uses the community of faith to speak God's word into one another. And it's the work of God's spirit through the word of God that transforms our futile, debased, ungodly thinking, and it turns us into all manner of righteousness as we begin to pursue purity and truth and our desires to glorify him, and that happens through the life of the mind. Church, this is why you need to read your Bible. You ought to read it because you're scared. I mean scared of what you could think like. You ought to read your Bible. That's why you need to pray over the Bible, memorize the Bible. That's why you must labor to lay the word of God in front of your children because you're building a framework of thinking. You ought to lay, grandparents, you ought to lay the Bible in front of your children. When they come over to your house, spoil them, yes, but read the Bible, yes to them. You ought to lay the Bible before your friends and your fellow Christians because without the word and without the spirit, we will be caught in the current of the world and there is no middle ground. You're either being conformed to the world or being transformed into the image of Christ. So the idea is this, God, change me and change my thinking. I mean, when you do dumb stuff, when I do dumb stuff, I often find myself saying, what was I thinking? A couple months ago, I was doing some lawn aeration and had a big old piece of equipment in the back of our Honda Pilot and I mean, I'm 44 years old, I, there's certain things, I, I've had enough bad experiences in my lifetime that I've got a record of my, with myself and I, I, I know that there's certain things that I'm supposed to do, but I'm hurrying and so I just put these cheesy little blocks underneath the wheels of this lawn aerator. As I'm traveling along and, and coming to stop, I'm hearing it kind of roll around and then it kind of clunks against the back um, uh, hatch and I think, well, that's probably not good, but I'll get there soon, I don't want to stop, I'm kind of in a hurry. I stop again, it clunks again and it clunks again and, and then I pull up into the driveway and as I kind of go up the, up the driveway, a little steep uh, climb, it doesn't just clunk, it, it goes over the blocks, and I hear this, and I'm sitting there going, oh no, right? <laughs> Come outside the car, and I look, and sure enough, the handlebars of that lawn area just gone right straight through the windshield. And I'm just thinking, my wife's gonna come out, and she's gonna see this, my kids are gonna come out, and somebody's gonna ask the question, did you think to play? Of course I did. <laughs> but I didn't, right? I know better. And yet I still don't do what I know I should do. It's one thing with a lawn aerator. It's another thing with all kinds of other moral issues in the world. And what we need is we need God to help us by the word 
to shape our thinking and to say, God, change me. Some of you need today to be the first day of a number of days over the summer where you begin to pray, God, change my thinking. Change my thinking. Here's the third thing, and that's lead me. I love the way that this text ends. So don't be conformed, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that what? That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. I love the fact that he says it this way, here's why. Because it implies that the will of God is not always crystal clear. The idea is you're in the middle of a hostile world and you love Jesus and you got this great position, but you still gotta figure out what's right, what's wrong, do I go left, do I go right? And there are thousands of decisions like that you face over your lifetime. Well, the Bible doesn't have chapter and verse, that it's nuance and application and gray area, and how do you figure out whether you do this or do that or say yes to this or look at this or watch that or read this or talk like that? All these things you have to navigate through, and what Paul is essentially saying is this, God, in the midst of this mindset of will you Help me to confess that I'm yours and change me, then will you also lead me? You know, the fact of the matter is, church, our our culture has never been static, but the change culturally in the last 10 years has been staggering, both morally, technologically. I mean, it's hard to keep up with. As a dad, I have, I've struggled, I mean, to keep up with the, the, the different nuances and the things that are around my kids. I, I can't develop a no list fast enough. I've told my sons this. Look, I can't, I can't tell you all the things that you're not supposed to do. I have to lead by principle because everything keeps changing. I mean, just last week, I got this text on my phone. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> How many of you know what that means? Awesome. At least I'm not in the majority, minority position. So I was like, boys, what, what does this mean? And they're like, it means rolling on the floor laughing totally perfect. And then the smiley face, but you knew that, right? So, and that's just one example of all the things that are happening around us. The, the avenues for the world to get into the minds and hearts of our kids are stunning and cunning. So how do you know God's will? How do you know what is good, acceptable, and perfect? How do you test the things that are a part of the culture to know, should I do this, should I be here, should I read this, should I watch this, should I have this app, should I engage in this kind of social media, should I say anything, should I put a smiley face after this text, all of these things. In order to know God's will in the midst of a hostile culture, listen to me, you have to have a mind that's been shaped by the word of God. So if you're a son or a daughter that's been brought by somebody else, by your parents, you got in someone else's car, you're wearing someone else's clothes, you ate someone else's food, and you're sitting in church today, and maybe you didn't always wanna be here, you gotta thank God that your parents thought enough of you and loved you enough to bring you to a place where you could begin to have your mind shaped by the word of God, because you live in a world that is seriously scary. You need to know the word so you can live the word. You need to know the word so that when things come across your path, 10 years, five years, two years, six months from now, this afternoon, you can know how to discern God's will and should we do this or should we not? And there are not always very clear answers. But that because of the appetite of God's word, you could see something and go, you know what, I, I don't know. I don't know why or what, but that, I'm not, that's not good. I'm not doing that. I don't know about this guy or this girl. I, she's, she says she's like legit, but I, She's attractive, but I don't know, I just, 
There's something about her, I just, and you can't put your finger on it, but the framework of the word of God has helped you to be discerning. This is where, frankly, some of you are missing it. I mean, lovingly, I need to tell you, you you may have, you've tried to change and you failed, and you failed because there's been no change of mindset. You just tried to take the Christian mindset and merge it with your mindset, and that didn't happen. What happens in conversion is Jesus' mindset takes over. Your mindset gets squashed, and a new mindset emerges. The problem may be that you're still listening to your own mindset, and that effect is constant failure. Becoming a Christian means that you belong to God and that you are so captivated by his grace that you start to think like he thinks. So much so that people look at you and go, man, you're different. And you are in ways you can't even explain. Others of you are setting yourself up for a huge problem in the future. And I've seen this so often as a pastor. Here's what happens. This person neglects to to know the word, they neglect to spend time in prayer, neglect to be part of the community of faith, They barely listen on a Sunday to sermons, and then suddenly, when a major decision is in front of them, like who to marry and what job to take or what house to buy, suddenly then, they want to know God's will. But the reason is not because of God, no, no, no. The real reason is because they don't want to buy the wrong house. They want to marry the wrong person. And they don't want to be miserable in their job. And the tragedy is that the chance of them knowing God's will in that moment is so slim because discerning God's will is a mindset and you don't build a mindset quickly. So for those of you who are seriously minded in terms of your study of the word and you are intaking and you are listening and you are seeking after God. And let's be honest, there's sometimes when you wonder, is this doing anything for me? I promise you it is. You bring your kids to a Sunday morning service, they're sitting next to you, you wonder, is anything getting through? I promise you it is. Even it's just a little truth that's gotten in their hearts. You spend time in the word, sometimes you close it up, there was no like Shazam sort of moment in your life. You just were a normal, everyday Christian reading a normal, everyday passage and a normal, everyday morning. And what happened, though, is that the Holy Spirit begins to use the Word of God to build a framework of thinking that is important and beautiful and life-changing. So the mindset is this. Lord, I'm yours. I belong to you, and I reaffirm my allegiance to you. Secondly, I want you to change me. I'm scared to death of the world in which we live, and I want you to transform me by the word and through the spirit. And finally, God, I want you to lead me. That's, that's a Christian mind. I'm yours, change me, lead me. That's where it starts. So Romans 12 gives us this introduction to a Christian mindset. And my question for you would be this. So how's that going? Have you placed your trust in Christ so that your whole hope is in him? Maybe today the first step for you is realizing that you need to be genuinely converted. Do you have a big view of God and a love for his word? Have you become too complacent or cozy with worldly thinking? 
Do you see today maybe the value of the word, the value of the church, the value of the Holy Spirit in shaping your thinking? Do you you recognize the danger of the culture that's around you and the kind of pressure that it can apply? And yet at the same time, do you see the hope of a Christian mindset? The idea is that you're gonna be dismissed out of this room and go into the world And that's where it really has to work in the midst of cultures that are putting pressure on you and sin issues that are gonna try and tempt you, that there is this Christian mindset informed by the word, empowered by the spirit, mercy by God's sovereign purposes, and you are gonna last all the way to the end, not because you're strong, but because God through his spirit is gonna help you survive all the way to the end, helping you to incrementally become like Jesus. And sure, there'll be mistakes that you'll make along the way, but at the end of the day, your mind is reflective of the person and the word of Christ. That's what the hope of this passage is. As a pastor, that's what I want for you as a church. I want it so badly for you. I wanna hear about your final moments that you treasured Christ all the way to the end, that there was no wavering from your fidelity to Jesus. As a dad, this is what I want for my kids. So this weekend, we crossed a major milestone in our lives with the graduation of our two sons, our oldest two sons, Hayden and Joseph. And I remember my graduation, you remember yours? I remember it was like, the, like everything changes from this point forward. And as I was thinking about this text and this moment in our family's life, you know what was on my mind? You know what I want for them? I want for them to give their entire being to the service of King Jesus. I want them to be living sacrifices that are holy and acceptable to God. I I do not, I do not want them to be conformed to the world. And I wanna send them out into a dark and hostile world knowing that with a Christian mind, they will know how to honor Christ and discern God's will and to take the righteousness of their mom and dad and bring it up another level. That's what I want. And that's my prayer for them, that's my prayer for you, that's my prayer for me. It's this, God, would you give us Christian minds that result in Christian lives? We would say, I'm yours. Would you change me? Please change me. And then would you lead me? Because we live in a scary world. And that mindset and that attitude and that frame of thinking is how Paul wants to now apply theology to where we really live. So let's do that in the midst of a dark and hostile world. Let's close in prayer. In a moment, there's gonna be some people up here afterwards who would love to pray with you about anything going on in your life, whether it's your need of putting your faith in Christ today or praying through a trial or maybe just a confession of saying, my mind is not Christian. Before we end, I want to give you a moment just to silently reflect on what it is that God by his spirit may be saying to you today.
In a moment, I'll close in prayer, but just for these next few moments, let's just quietly ask the Lord, what are you saying today by your spirit and through your word? Father in heaven, my vision of what should happen now is that your people will be dispersed from this place and have their minds and lives just incrementally look more like Jesus. And if that could happen, I would be really happy. And I think you would be really glorified. And so God, would you let the mind of Christ be the life of our people Would the mind of Christ be their thoughts this week and their ethics? Or would you help us to be a people who are marked by being living sacrifices that are holy and acceptable, that we could know your will in the midst of a hostile culture and that we would live through the heart and life of our King named Jesus. And so we invite you now to empower us and to help us. And we thank you for your word and for its help in shaping how we think. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.